Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Morris. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Glenn Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Nathan Millward. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They have 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, in today's episode, we got some good stuff coming up for you. We've got a new rider skill segment that's going to give you some tips on turning your bike around in tight areas. And get this, it includes some skidding. You're going to love that. We're also going to check in with Sam Manicom. Sam, the author, as you know, an adventure rider. He is in the United States right now doing a tour, having a great time. But we're going to find out exactly what he's up to and what's been going on. That's an interesting one. We also have a guy named Oliver who goes by the name of Broken Tooth. He's got his KLR650 on a pontoon boat, and he's heading up to the north where it's freezing i i can't explain it i've done the interview and i can't explain it you you've got to listen to this my name's jim martin this is adventure rider radio stay with us we got a good one for you Oliver Solero, or Broken Tooth, as he goes by, doesn't let much stop him from enjoying life and doing basically whatever he wants to do. For Oliver, it's about having fun and doing things that I think most people wouldn't even dream of doing. Oliver has a bit of a checkered past of crazy ideas involving motorcycles. For instance, equipping bikes with tracks to enter a snowmobile race and on to riding the ice roads in northern Canada, you know, that the truckers do, they make the television shows about. And now he's on another wild adventure that sees his trusty KLR650 strapped onto a pontoon boat so that he can ride and float his way along an early explorer's route of eastern Canada. Now, I, I know what you're probably asking right now. Exactly what is Oliver doing and how does a motorcycle and a boat go together and Yeah, I know. I get it. Well, it's probably best if you hear it from him. My name is Oliver Solero, a.k.a. Broken Tooth. And I up until uh, about a month ago, I've been a welder for many, many years. 
and I've ditched that life and decided that I'm just going to float around Ontario on a, on a motorcycle on a pontoon raft. I, I don't know, I guess I've kind of sort of always been a little bit off the wall. Um, before this, I mean, I've done a fair bit of uh, riding out on the ice roads, which I think by most people's standards is probably not something that you'd consider normal, especially since it's on a motorcycle. Yeah, we've had a lot of people doing different things in this this show. Um, people riding their their motorcycles or their scooters through uh, Canada in the winter time. But um, I, I think you're upping it a notch. I, I do think you're pushing <laughs> the limit for sure. I mean, or, or extending the limit, I should say, not pushing the limit. But you've done a lot of riding motorcycles on ice roads. What's that all about? <laughs> uh, the ice road riding actually came about as a result of another zany scheme that uh, I was kicking around. Uh, I had convinced my wife that it was a good idea to uh, race motorcycles against snowmobiles in the in the 3,000 kilometer uh, um, Kane's Quest snowmobile race in Labrador. It's sort of like uh, like the Dakar of snowmobiling races. And uh, this was back when uh, snow bikes, the, the track kits that you could purchase that you could sort of graft onto your dirt bike were in their infancy. And there were two or three manufacturers that were just coming out. Uh, and so we bought a couple of KTM 530s. We grafted on the track kits, uh, rode around the front yard here for a little bit, and immediately realized that this was an absolutely stupid idea. <laughs> that was the year. That was 2010. It uh, it was the year that about, I think, almost 400 kilometers of the course, which was on the Atlantic sea ice. It was a fairly warm year that year. So the course literally broke away from the mainland and drifted out to Greenland. Um, so they canceled the race. They didn't have a contingency plan for the lack of snow, which was an incredibly unusual thing for, for this race. Normally it's minus 40, minus 45. They've got 16 feet of snow. Um, but this was just a, a unbelievable year for warmth. So we sold one of the bikes and I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll just keep one and uh, I'll keep my day job and try and figure out what I can do with this thing that's more interesting than just going around in circles here in the back 40. Uh, and it sort of hit me, well, why don't you, you know, throw it on the back of a pickup truck and head on up into, you know, where it's really cold, where it's really stark, where it's really remote and, and do something funky. And as it turns out, they're really not practical for that. They do not make a very good cross country vehicle in terms of uh, the way you would treat a, a snowmobile on the snow. The kits that I have work great on a snow cross track or on sort of packed ground, nothing terribly deep. Uh, they're tons of fun. They're, I, I, I absolutely love it. I still have it. I haven't gotten rid of it. As a matter of fact, the tires that came with the bike have never seen daylight. Um, once once we got the bike, I put the track kit on, and that's just the way it's been sitting since 2009. Well, just for the, the people who don't know what that is, but it's like a, like a mini snowmobile, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, The track is about 12 inches wide, and I'm guessing about 120 inches long on the kit that I have. And it's just a single ski in the front. Um, they work great. The, the one that I have works great for snow that's at least six inches deep. Anything less than that, and it sort of just washes out and you end up going down. Uh, and I think the upper limit would probably be about uh, two feet deep because then it just sort of drops down into it. There are other kits out there like the timber sleds uh, and the uh, the Yetis 
uh, and I think there's another new company out this year, Motoski or something like that. I'm not sure. Uh, that work really well with the bottomless deep powder. But the one that I have is really more of a snowcross kind of thing. And lucky for me, I actually live you know, just a few hundred yards from a motocross track. So in the wintertime, it's a, it's a hoot and a holler. Um, but uh, to get back to the the, the race thing, uh, so this bike here, I thought, okay, well, let's go further north. Maybe let's find some sea ice. Maybe let's... Uh, uh, this whole ice road truckers thing was uh, was pretty, you know, right in the middle of its popularity, I think, right around when we were doing this. And uh, I thought, well, gee, I wonder what it'd be like to just sort of follow the ice roads, not necessarily on them, because you really do need some snow for this thing beyond simply hard pack. It, uh, uh, I thought, well, let's try that. And then I experimented on some gravel roads that were packed around here near us and realized that was a stupid idea. <laughs> stupid idea part you know, 438 of mine. Um, and I realized, well, okay, they, these are 18-wheel transport trucks. They're, and they're carrying huge loads on the ice. There are all kinds of people out there that ice race motorcycles in the wintertime. What's to stop me from getting a set of motocross tires, putting carbide picks in them, and running the ice roads? I mean, it's a road. Really, what's to stop me? And and how different is it from snowmobiling? I mean, people say it's just madness. It's it's crazy. Okay, I will admit, on the motorcycle, you are completely out in the open. Uh, the, the, more specifically, the bike that I have, it's the KLR650. Once once I got a set of, uh, I think I paid $48 for some, some used Kenda tires, and I bought a bunch of uh, screw-in studs and... I think, yeah, the grip studs, uh, they're called. The back tire was uh, set up with three-quarter inch, and the front was set up with half-inch carbide studs. And I'd say in total, there's probably about, uh, I'd say close to 600 studs between the two of them. So this was an absolute lark. I had no idea how it was going to work out. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I studded up a second set of tires and figured the only way I was going to get up to the world's longest ice road, which is the Wapusk Trail, was if I took what they call the button hook route, or what I coined the button hook route, uh, along asphalt uh, from Owen Sound, Ontario, across the top of uh, Lake Superior, uh, heading west through Thunder Bay, past the Manitoba border. And from there, you turn right, heading north on the western shore of Lake Winnipeg. And once you get to Thompson, Manitoba, which is where all the car manufacturers and snow, or I should say ATV and car manufacturers, they do their 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 hardcore winter testing up there in Thompson. Um, it it regularly gets there, gets below minus 45 in the wintertime. So in Thompson, uh, you head north a little bit more to uh, another small town called Gillum, and that's it. From Gillum, you're on the ice roads. And uh, I just turned east, and believe it or not, it, with the carbide studs, uh, the cold was unbelievable. With the carbide studs, the um, the bike was like a cat on a carpet, like an absolute cat on a carpet. I can't describe it any better than that. Um, you could literally go around in in twenty foot circles with your elbow dragging the, the ice, and it it was just unbe unbelievable. So I thought, well, there's nothing stopping. It's just the cold. There's nothing stopping me from from getting down the world's longest ice road. Um, until about eight hours into my first day and my cornea froze in my right eye and I lost part of my vision and I was starting to feel the effects of frostbite on my digits and I thought, okay, well, maybe there is something stopping me here. I have to 
sort of recollect my thoughts and decide how uh, how I'm going to attack this. Uh, okay, so when I got to uh, the first village, uh, Shimadawa, on the ice roads, I warmed up for, for a time in Shimadawa. Uh, even though I was only riding with one eye, I realized that it, uh, it, it was doable. I just had to make sure that I kept my shield down. Um, and it took about three weeks for my sight to come back. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the nurse's station in Shimadawa um, assured me that it was vascular. And as long as it hadn't cut past, I think they call it a barum or barinum or something like that. There's a layer in your eye that if your cornea freezes, it's no big deal. You'll get your vision back unless you go past this layer. And lucky for me, I hadn't gone past it. So I decided to keep going. Uh, had a bit of bad weather, uh, but when I got to Fort Severn, which was about the th- two-thirds point, uh, it was it was quite clear that I was not going to make it all the way down the Wapusk Trail. Uh, so I stopped at Fort Severn, staged a little bit, and turned around and went back the other way. So my, the very first time I attempted it, it was about an 8,000-kilometer run. Uh, I saw temps down into the minus 40s, and uh, I, I knew what I had to do for the next time. So And the next time was in 2013 when uh, I went the other side, started off on the other side, went up the length of James Bay, up a brand new winter road called the uh, the Weedham Trail. And that took me into Moosonee, Fort Albany and Attawapiskat. And then from Attawapiskat, we put the bike on a, on a small Dash 8 and then flew it to Polar Bear Provincial Park, in uh, which is on the edge of a town called Pewanik. And then from Pewanik, that puts you right at the end of the Wapusk Trail. Now, and if you can pull it off, you've done 700, I think, in 80 or 760 kilometers of the absolute longest winter road in the world. And let me tell you, that was something else. Oh, I, I can't wait to go back there again. Like the, Really? So you, you, sort see, of, you sort of really fell in love with the whole winter riding thing? Oh, yeah. I, I've got well over 40,000 K logged below zero degrees Celsius. Like in, in my life, I've, I don't know, half a million, something like that K. I'm, I'm not trying to brag about it or anything but of all the riding i've done forty thousand of it has been below zero degrees and of that three thousand five hundred or three thousand six hundred i think i have to check my little book of it has been just on the ice roads and i uh, I, I have an idea that this year i might actually try something a little bit different uh there's uh, there's a few communities on the far far end of Ontario that border Manitoba that I'd uh, I'd like to go see. I actually have a friend up there that I'd like to go visit, uh, and possibly do a little stint in Nunavut as well. So that brings you up to the trip that you're on right now. What is this trip you're on? Okay, this trip that I'm doing now is essentially a reenactment, or not a reenactment, I'm just kind of sort of more or less following the rough route of uh, Samuel de Champlain through New France. And I don't know, I just, I, I thought I'd give it a bit of a funky hook, uh, just just have some fun with it. I, I've got a couple of kids who uh, are fairly grown now, they're almost launched, um, and I just, I, I want to make sure that they understand, no matter what they do in life, who gives a flying rat's ass what people think about you? Do what makes you do, do what's your passion, do what you love, do what thrills you. And don't worry about someone else's, you know, requirements for what uh, is, is mainstream in this world. Just pick what you want and have fun with it. And um, I, I remember seeing a, 
uh, a photograph of a statue somewhere of Samuel de Champlain. And he had this huge marble or brass uh, cavalier or cavalier hat. I'm not even sure how to pronounce it with a massive ostrich feather on it. And I thought, geez, okay, where can I go with this? So I, I, I had the idea that I was going to at some point be doing something with a motorcycle and a raft, but uh, I, I didn't really have anything cohesive that I could come up with. And living in Ontario and knowing how beautiful this incredible province is and, and just the, the opportunities for riding are, are just insane up here. I mean, I have seen a lot of this province and I know for a fact that there are a lot of places here that you can't see on a motorcycle. You have to go out there and do it on a boat. And as I don't have a boat license and I don't even really have a boat, I thought, well, why not just put the two of them together? I, I, I realize it sounds like it doesn't make any sense to you because I'm trying to translate what's going on in my head. Uh, so I thought, OK, well, I can get to places that I can't get to if I put the bike on a raft. So here we are. We're getting into the tail end of the season. And I still haven't really done anything this summer in terms of a big, long trip. Like my wife and I were in Nepal in April and uh, we had a good time in the Himalayas on a couple of Royal Enfields. But we haven't really done anything for the summer. So I, I thought, OK, well, then this is the big one uh, before the ice road stuff this year. So um, I ended up, I don't know, just taking stock of uh, how long it was going to take. I approached my employer and asked for a bit of time off and they kind of couldn't because frankly they had already given me quite a bit of uh, time they gave me a leave of absence for nepal and i've used up all my vacation time so i had to make a decision i said what am i going to do here i mean I've, i'm kind of committed now i bought all this gear uh, i'm just going to take a chance and uh, i i I left a job that I've been at for nearly 10 years. It's, it was a good job, good benefits, good pay. Um, but um, let's face it, there's just only so much time. There's, I remember hearing somebody say that uh, they, they taught their kids about the importance of living a, a full life, a well life lived by taking a tape measure, putting it down on the ground and showing them where they were now in terms of years and how many they had left. So I, I did that. I put the tape measure on the ground and I just assumed I was going to live to about 85. And I realized, oh, there really isn't all that much tape left. So I, um, I, said, I said to my boss, I said, well, it's been fun, but I, I'm going to do this. And uh, we'll, we'll let the chips fall where they may when I come back. And uh, it, it's a leap of faith. I, I fully understand that I'm probably going to end up working at a fast food joint, you know, slinging hash and fries when I come back. But for now, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it's worth it. If I, you know, if, if I can live for two months hand to mouth on a raft with a motorcycle and uh, deal with the consequences for years later, consider it done. So the rough plan for this trip is to reenact Samuel de Champlain's uh, trip through New France. You're doing it with a KLR 650 and a raft setup. Explain that in a little more detail. Okay, so the KLR, um, it's the same bike that I've been using out on the ice roads. It was the bike that I essentially thought would be dead by now, but for whatever reason, just will not give up the ghost. So if if, uh, if this bike is going to sink down into the bottom of the Great Lakes and sort of be like a modern-day two-wheeled Erebus and Terror, uh, I, I might as well just keep using the same $1,800 motorcycle. I, I think 
Oh, it's got to have at least 110, 120,000 kilometers on it because I know when I bought it, it had uh, well over 50 and the speedometer has been broken for years. So it, uh, it, it's not going to hurt me. It's, it's not going to make me sad uh, in terms of monetary loss. It's uh, more of a spiritual thing. Poor girl, if, if I ever dump her in, in the lake and, you know, can't retrieve her, uh, I, I'll, I'll cry over the loss of the bike, but not the, uh, the cost of the loss. And the raft... It's literally just two 14-foot pontoons. Uh, the company's called Maxon. They're, I'm not really sure what the what they're made of, but uh, apparently they're bulletproof. And I just hung a small little outboard off the back of it. And I've been called uh, an idiot for this. And I clearly understand why. If you want a boat, get a boat. If you want a bike, get a bike. Where's the practicality in putting the two of them together? It, there is none. There's absolutely nothing uh, practical or or logical about what it is I'm doing here with the bike and the raft. And yet, here's the thing. Everywhere I've gone, every place I've docked, out in the middle of the lake, people have come up to me and they can't believe what they're seeing. I mean, most of them think it's quite ridiculous and they'd never do it. Uh, but nonetheless, it doesn't matter that it's not practical. It is, I am having the most amazing time. You wouldn't believe what a great time I've had on this raft with this bike. And uh, I've literally just started this trip. I'm only into the first leg of it. And I haven't even come into the big, scary waters yet, which I will be doing shortly. And already, I'm having the time of my life. A practicality be damned. You've got all your safety gear. I mean, you must be running with, you know, at least some sort of satellite tracker or, or something like that. Oh, yeah. So there's a nut bar on a motorcycle on a cataract. And yeah, sure, he's a nut bar, but he's got a spot beacon. He's got a, a you know, cold weather immersion suit, uh, all the, uh, the the wetsuit underneath that as well. Uh, I have uh, my marine flares, my safety kit, my tow lines. Uh, I have uh, my aerosol horns. And believe it or not, I'm going to be within cell service of uh, just about anyone the whole time. So even if I dunk it, my cell phone's going to be in a waterproof bag. I can just literally call 911 from the water. How do you rig a KLR650 to go onto a raft? Okay, the frame, If you, when you look at the pictures, you'll see it's just an aluminum frame that's uh, essentially just tubes and clamps. There's, there's nothing really fancy about it. Uh, and the pontoons just get strapped on underneath uh, with uh, – I actually uh, got Ben Rainchild to send me a bunch of those green chili straps. They actually work pretty good for this thing. I, they're, they're, oh, for I green guess chili adventure gear. Be, yeah, they're, they're moto-specific straps, but uh, Ben used to uh, – or I think still does uh, um, raft guiding. And this is a whitewater raft. It's a, it's a class 5 catamaran – or cataract, I should say. So he said, look, I've got a bunch of these extra straps. It's just nylon. I'm going to send them to you. And wow, did they, <laughs> they were great. So this all just bolts together using U-bolts and 5 sixteenths nuts. Uh, and the bike is set up in the raft so that there's two sort of angular chocks on either end. And then the frame itself splits right down the middle in half with eight bolts. Uh, I bought a couple of plastic dock wheels from Canadian Tire and just stuck it on one of the bars. And 
then I'll just go to the back of the frame and I'll pick it up and literally like a wheelbarrow, I can just wheelbarrow the bike and the cataract frame into the water and then just inflate the pontoons from underneath. So there's an outboard motor as well. Yes. Yes. Where do you plan on ending this year? I'm good until the snow flies. As long as the water is fluid, I will remain in motion. So I, I'm not worried about snow. Uh, I'm not worried. I'm not worried about rain. I'm not worried about the cold. Uh, my my biggest hurdle through all of this is the wind. The wind is what decides whether or not uh, I'm going to be out on the water, but not the cold. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to guesstimate uh, probably the beginning of November, maybe the middle of November, because I am going to be up in the French River, uh, Nipissing, Mattawa area by then. So I, I have a sneaking suspicion I am going to see some snow by then. I thought at first you were putting the raft onto the bike and you were all one package going from one place to another, but you're trucking the raft. Okay, I actually did that in the beginning. I built sort of like a, a lattice kind of ladder frame around the bike using the pontoon uh, tubing. It kind of sort of worked, but it was really not a safe setup and I'm not going to be doing that from here on in. Uh, I might consider doing something else with it. I, I have some ideas where I might turn the pontoon frame into a sort of uh, a sidecar setup. Uh, there's been suggestions that I turn it into a trailer as well, which is is a possibility. Uh, but I, I think for now, I, I might actually build that raft into a sidecar and then just disassemble it and turn it back into a raft. Well, it sounds like great fun, and it certainly sounds like a way to extend the motorcycle season in Ontario. Oliver, ride safe out there. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Now, after that, you have to ask yourself, what's the last crazy idea you had? And Well, maybe you should get out there and do it. I was speaking with Oliver Solero from his home in Ontario, Canada. Since then, he has got on the road, or I guess I should say on the road and on the water. I, I should have told him to water safe as well. But in any case, you can find out more about Oliver by visiting his website, thebrokentoothproject.com. Or, of course, you can look him up on Facebook. He's Oliver.Solero. And those links will be in our show notes. Coming up in just a minute, we've got our rider skills segment where we're going to learn to turn our bikes around on tight trails. Stay with us. Adventure Rider Radio is also supported by Aerostitch. And you know, every week I get an email from Aerostitch telling me what they have on sale, the different things that are going on with their company, the pop-up events they do. You could get that too. All you have to do is drop by their website and sign up. It's www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, you want to use that forward slash ARR because that's going to let them know you came from Adventure Rider Radio, but it's also going to get you 10% off your order or free shipping if you're an existing customer. Aerostitch has been around for 33 years, I think just over 33 years now. They've been making making, designing, and selling equipment for motorcyclists like you and I that makes our riding better and more comfortable every day. Now, I've mentioned before that Aerostitch sells Factory Direct. It's an interesting thing to note. They sell their suits, I think, up to 61 different sizes. Yeah, 61. No other manufacturer does that. And there's a reason for it. It's the fit. That's why the fit is so good with Aerostitch. Check out their gear, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Now get ready for Rider Skills, pro rider tips and techniques that should help us become better riders through learning the finer points of handling our motorcycles. And as usual, we have our resident pro trainer, Brett Tax. We're back with another rider skills segment, tips and tricks uh, from the pros to help us ride better. And of course, we have our resident pro, Brett Tax. Brett, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Good to have you back because I am in the mood to learn today. We're talking about turning and we're talking about power turns to begin with. So how do you want to kick this off? Well, I, as you know, I'm, I'm all about less energy and less work to get the work done. And so I, I like talking about power turns. And what we were kind of thinking about doing today is going, if we're pointed one direction and we want to go another direction and do it in the least amount of space, how can we do that effectively? And that's where I want to go today. Okay. So on this episode, we're going to talk about turning our bikes around in tight places, broken down into three categories. One will be power turns, obviously using the engine. We'll cover a slide turn, a pivot turn, and a trail turn. And then the other one, manual turns, where um, you're off the bike. And we'll talk about using your side stand to turn your bike around and a handlebar pull. And the last one we'll talk about is assisted turns, using a Z-drag system or a winch, if you're lucky enough to have one, or using a toe strap for a toe strap pivot. So to kick it off, the first one within the power turns segment, is a slide turn an effective tool to use on a tight trail or a narrow area to get yourself turned around? Uh, slide turns really are effective. And to, to define that for people, slide turn is kind of like what you used to do with your BMX bike, where you'd be pedaling along and you lock up the back brake and the bike slides sideways. Well, it takes less distance to turn the bike sideways than if you actually turn the handlebars and roll the bike to the side. So that's what we're talking about with the slide turn. Okay. So the slide turn, it sounds easy. You just thump it on the brakes. Like you said, if you had a BMX bike, I didn't. But um, if you did and you were able to do that, great fun. The downside with the bike is they're a lot heavier and less forgiving in a lot of ways. And you've got to watch that you, know, you don't high side, et cetera. So let's look at this. Let's just talk about it first uh, from a, a basic standpoint. We're on an open road and we want to do a slide turn. Can you just run through how we would do that? All right. So as I said, the, it sounds really simple. We're, we're going along and we, we lock up the brakes and we turn the handlebars and the bike's supposed to slide sideways. On a BMX, that works pretty well. But as you just mentioned, on these big bikes, there's a whole lot more weight going on. So there's a, a, a nice little way to practice this and trick uh, tricks to, to kind of master it. And this is how we teach it at the Adventure School at uh, PSSOR and, and when we're doing the stuff with Tour USA. And what we have riders do, it's pretty fun, is you go in a straight line. And the first thing you want to do is just get comfortable locking up the back wheel. So as you're riding along in the grass, you just lock up the back wheel and you let the bike slide in a nice straight line. Now, the back brake is not being used to slow the motorcycle. So when you lock up the back brake, you can still use the front brake to actually slow the motorcycle. And that's kind of step one to learning a slide turn. The second step is to get the back end kicked out. So as you're coming up, you'll do the same thing. You'll get up to speed, whatever you're comfortable with. I don't recommend 50 to start with. Uh, I'm thinking like 10, 12 miles per hour. But get the back end locked up, and then you, you steer the, the front tire just slightly opposite the direction you want the bike to slide. So you steer it right and then hard left. And the back end will kick out, and then it'll try to self-correct thereby swinging the bike to the left. So just like counter steering, you push right and it goes right, but the, the steering actually goes left and then right if you if you slow it down and put it on camera. 
So as it slides around, what are some of the precautions? I mean, that, that's where we're talking about, you know, if something grabs and you're going to high side. All right. So high side is bad. Low siding is okay. Uh, again, you're, you're sliding around, so that's something we should expect. And we've talked about gear, and, and of course, I, all that stuff is, is assumed that you're, you're taking those precautions. But the big thing is you really would rather have it go low side than high. All right, so as you're, as you're riding along, you, you lock up that back tire. You stomp on that rear brake and hold it down, and you hard right turn and hard left turn, and that back end will kick around to the left. You want to let that bike kind of lean down underneath you. So it's it's tilting to the left. It's turning to the left. The worst case, if you get too low, the back end will slide out or it'll, it'll walk around farther than you want it and the bike will tip over. What you don't want to do is get that sideways and get nervous and let off the rear brake. If you let off the rear brake and the back end hooks up, it'll hook up and it'll toss you off. The other thing I'd, again, recommend uh, is you learn this type of a skill to get into gravel or better yet, grass and a very smooth surface. So you're not worried about also trying to read terrain surfaces where you're sliding sideways and then hook into a berm that stops the tire. Then that has a tendency to throw you over. Let me just step away from what we're talking about right now just to throw this in. Uh, street bikes, often someone will get into trouble with a street bike, even a cruiser, by buzzing along. Maybe there's something in traffic, something they lock up that rear wheel. That's when they run into trouble is when they let off, isn't it? When they end up high siding. So maybe we should run through this just a quick little lesson here for what do you do on the street if you lock up the rear wheel? Well, the, the common belief is just hold it locked up and ride it out. The key to this is keeping the eyes all the way up onto the horizon directly in front of you and continue to steer the direction of the slide. No different than if you're in snow in a car and you start to to slide, you continue to steer the direction you want the car to go. And that's what a lot of riders uh, don't do. And that's certainly not a bad way to go. But the reality is if the tires are, are perfectly in line, you can release the brake and regain control. Off-road, that's far more likely to be a, a, a good situation or, or a good option because you're in a lower traction situation. So if you miscalculate the alignment of the front and back, it's less likely to grab and, and to have a tendency to throw you over. Where the street bike, if you miscalculate that, if the back wheel is misaligned to the front wheel, it tries to snap back into line. And when it does that, it has a tendency to throw you off the high side of the motorcycle, hence high side, and you get thrown out in front of it, and then the motorcycle comes tumbling over the top of you. And most people consider that a bad, uh, a bad result. <laughs> the, what a lot of people aren't discussing is what I mentioned first off, which is the front brake is still stopping, is still slowing you. And when we're doing things like slide turns and pivot turns, what you do with the front brake is very important. So when we're off-road, what you'll find is we use the back tire to change the direction. You lock it up to get the bike to steer. But if the bike starts to walk too far, you're still using the front brake to increase or decrease the speed to change that. Of course, you have knobby tires and surface. With the bigger bikes, we do the same thing. And certainly on the pavement, we can also do the same thing. But from the dirt bike, the consequences are the least. All the way to a heavy street bike on the pavement, the consequences are the highest. And off-road, dual sporting, adventure riding kind of splits the difference. And and that's the only reason that we, we teach things slightly different. The dynamics don't really change much, just the results and the penalties for making errors. So the slide turn, we're going to use that, you're thinking, on a, on a narrow narrow trail, something we've got into where it's it's too narrow to do a big turnaround. That's where we can use the option of a slide turn? 
Yeah, often what I find is when I get into a very narrow road or I have a very sharp turn, it could be coming downhill and then making a sharp turn to go a direction change on the trail. Or if you're on a heavy adventure bike, often it's where there's been washout and construction. And you, as you come down to the bottom, you, you're coming down into, say, a, a small valley or something. You don't want to end up with the front end stuck down in the bottom with the back end behind you, you can actually come down, lock up the back and slide the bike sideways. So it actually sets down both tires into the bottom of the V. So there's a lot of different applications. You could use a slide turn. It's not just about showing off. And we've talked before about this, you know, it's always, you, you want to practice the skills ahead of time. Ideally, you want to go to somebody like you guys at PSSOR and, and take a course because that's where you're going to be the best at it. But you, you got to practice things ahead of time. And it's best to start off with a smaller bike or at the very least, I guess, somebody else's bike. I like the idea of somebody else's bike, and that's why the, the school always has little bikes for people to use, and and uh, Tour USA, who we, we partner with, as you know, um, they have rental bikes where people can fly it and use like a KLR when they normally drive a, a large GS. So yeah. parts are cheaper and the bikes are lighter. I like the idea of that. So, okay, now we're that, that's the slide turn. We're on to a pivot turn now. What is a pivot turn? Yes. Now, um, just to give a, before we jump too far, the slide turn is probably the most practical of, of all the power turns for a large bike because a slide turn uses momentum. The pivot turn requires power. That means you have to get the back end to break traction. And this is just not an easy thing for a lot of riders to do. They're instinctually, the idea of revving the motor high and throwing the clutch out so the back end breaks free they just have a really hard time with it. They're very hesitant. Of course, the more hesitant they are, they're amazed how much traction they get. And then the bike either wants to launch straight up in the air or it wants to shoot off in a straight line instead of pivoting. Part of that is knowing your surfaces as well, isn't it? I mean, you can look at a surface that you're on with the bike and have a pretty good idea of how your bike's going to react. Absolutely. And learning this, again, controlled environments are what I always recommend. Find some some slick grass. Uh, street tires are great because they have horrible traction off-road. Uh, gravel can be very good, generally a hard pack gravel, better than a soft gravel. So surface can make a huge difference. And as you learn the bike, you can apply it in different surfaces. Okay, walk us through the pivot turn. All right. So here's the key. The, the bike's going to pivot basically directly below where the steering head is. So where the handlebars connect to the bike, it's not actually pivoting on the front tire. So when you come up to do the pivot, these are the two things that are very, very key. Number one, take your take whichever foot you're going to pivot. So we're just going to pretend we're pivoting to the left. So take your left foot and place it as far forward as you can, as close to that front tire. You won't actually be able to get all the way up there. Turn the handlebars full lock to the right, lean the bike over as far as you possibly can. Generally, you have your left hand, the handlebars full locked, and you're actually just holding the bike up by the left bar. If the bike is not leaned over far enough, it has too much traction, it'll launch. The farther it leans over, the easier it pivots. So you have to get that plant forward and you have to get that bike leaned over as far as possible. Keep the handlebars locked, add more throttle than you're comfortable with, and you have to throw the clutch because when you break traction, it needs to be quick and it needs to be instant. Okay, when you say throw the clutch, it sort of gives the sound of you just dump it and you're gone. You're keeping your fingers on this clutch the same as you always do, right? It is. And because the second part of this is we're not going to be like motocrossers. We're not going to spin around and do wheelies and berms shooting out. All you're trying to do is turn the bike around. We're going to go to the left. So take your left foot, place it as far forward as you can to the left. 
lean the motorcycle all the way to the left as far as you can lean the motorcycle and turn the handlebar handlebars full lock left. I mean, all the way locked in tight. No weight on the motorcycle at all. So all your weight is on the inside leg because you want the bike as light as possible so the back end will break traction. Once you've got it yourself in position, increase the throttle beyond what you're normally comfortable with, and then you're going to throw the clutch. And what I mean is when the clutch is disengaged, you're going to engage it as quickly as you possibly can. You're not going to ease it in. You're going to let that clutch out all the way. However, you're not giving up control of the motorcycle. You can keep two fingers around the handlebar and two fingers are on top of that clutch lever. Because as soon as that bike pivots and is pointed the direction you want it, you're going to pull the clutch back in and disconnect the power. That way it doesn't get out of hand and you don't end up getting hurt or if the bike isn't leaned over far enough and or if you don't keep the handlebars full lock and the bike wants to go a new direction, you can quickly regain control and you're not going to end up hurt. And I guess you you have to be careful. You don't lean it too far into the corner because as soon as you pull in the clutch, it's going to want to flop down. Well, the, actually, as they pivot around, the bikes naturally come into a standing position. So if you're doing a 180 degree pivot or even a 90 degree pivot, by the time you pull the clutch in, the bike's usually standing up. Because the rotation point of the wheel is slightly in front of you. So as it starts to pivot, the front wheel continues to roll around and it'll really, the, the handlebars will actually begin to straighten up. I mean, you really have to force them to try to stay them in a full lock. And that's why I say you, you want to accomplish that. It's not going to happen. At some point, those handlebars are going to straighten out. The bike's going to stand up. So when you pull the clutch in, you're, you're actually still in control. Okay, now you have standing pivot. Ah, so this is a modified what I find is you'll end up on a, a trail system. You just you, you may lack confidence or you may not get the bike over far enough to get a clean pivot. So what you can do is actually get off the motorcycle completely. So again, we'll we'll continue turning to the left here. So you actually stand on the left side of the motorcycle completely so that you can lean it down lower to the ground. And then you do the same kind of a pivot because again, you're not trying to pivot and then go rocketing off in a new direction. You're just trying to pivot to get pointed in a new direction. What about the trail turn now? All right. So trail turn, trail turns are, are one of my favorite and probably one of the most common turnarounds I use. This is in a situation where you don't have enough time or enough distance to actually ride the bike or turn it around. And so to the left or to the right, usually you can find some kind of a hill or some kind of a berm next to the road or next to the trail. And what we're going to do is use the same technique we use to turn a bike around on a hill when we get stuck going up a hill. To do a trail turn, we're going to use the motor and we're going to use gravity to get the bike turned around. Again, as you know, and I keep repeating, I'm a lazy guy and I'm going to use as little energy as possible to get these big bikes turned around. So since we seem to have a theme going to the left, I'm going to say I'm on a trail. There's not enough time to ride the bike around and point it in the new direction. But on my left, I have a berm or a hill. It goes up from the road or the trail I'm on. So what I can do is turn my handlebars left. I can run the bike straight up that hill. So the front of my wheel is now pointed up the hill. The back tire is still down on the trail where I'm normally sitting. Once I'm pointed up the hill, I can turn the handlebars to the right. And then the bike will actually rotate by gravity. You let the bike come back down the hill. And when the handlebars are turned right, your wheel will be pointed in the direction you started from. Now, most of the time when I do a trail turn, I am not sitting on the motorcycle. Sometimes you can, but again, as you turn that bike up the hill, you generally end up in a point where 
where your feet are is farther away from the earth than it is when it's sitting on flat ground. So I usually do these turns when I get off the motorcycle. So I get off the left, I'd run it up the hill, then turn it to the right, then back it down. Um, you can do it from either side. You have to be able to read the terrain to figure out which side you want to get off the motorcycle. Is there a side of the bike that you prefer to stand on or that you would recommend that people stand on? Most of the time, it's uphill. Whatever's going to put me on the uphill side. It gives me better leverage for the bike, but also if something goes wrong, the bike starts to tip or fall over or slip, I'm not going to end up underneath it. So that covers our power turns. And now in your notes, we have manual turns, starting with the side stand turn, which I think we covered a while ago, but it's definitely worth repeating here. It's such a neat turn. And, you know, I had talked about the weightless rider in one of ours and, and how the bikes really don't weigh anything until they're leaned over and you're trying to hold them up. And the side stand turn is one of those that takes advantage of that. I carry a, a small e-tool or a small shovel with me when I when I travel. And so this is what I usually use for this kind of a turn. I'll put the blade of the shovel underneath the side stand on the trail. And then once I'm there, I can grab the back of the bike and I pull it towards me and it pivots up onto the side stand. So the, the side stand is actually now almost straight up and down. Once the bike's up on the side stand, that's supporting all the weight. So I'm not actually holding the weight of the motorcycle or very little of it. And then I can grab the front handlebar and the bike actually just stands up both wheels off the ground or the front wheel very light and it just rolls and pivots all the way around points the other direction. We use it putting the bikes away in containers. We can use it on trailers. We can use it on the trails. You just have to make sure your side stand isn't going to dig under the ground. And if you don't have a shovel? Uh, rocks work great, uh, especially large ones. A chunk of wood would work well. Or just paying attention to the train and picking a spot where it's hard-packed gravel or, or hard-packed surface so that when you pick it up, it when it rotates, you don't end up just driving it in the ground like a stake. It's interesting, this this side stand turn, because I just finished seeing a, a post they were talking about a broken side stand just by standing on their motorcycle. Side stands can bend. I've seen them bend on F650 singles. I've seen the F800 bend. But generally, the bends aren't when the bikes are being used properly. It's when they get strapped down and they bounce on them or, or when people stand up onto the foot pegs on the side stand side and overload the, the side stand. And as you know, we teach mounting from the pegs, but we talk about the way to neutralize the weight or mount from the high side where you're dismounting or taking the weight off of that side stand. But what we're doing here is once that bike is up straight up and down, it's there's no lateral force. It can't bend the, the side stand itself. Okay. So then what we would have to be careful of is getting on the bike while it's on its side stand, just to be clear with that point. Yeah, many riders will, they like the, they like the idea of stepping on the side stand, but they step up and they're outboard of central. Uh, and what we talk about, it, and this is a great way to learn, it's my preference anyway, was to mount from the high side, from the opposite side of the side stand. But if you can mount your motorcycle from the high side and not have it come off side stand, you're able to find neutral. And if you can do it from the high side, you can do it from the low side. If you stand on the pegs from the high side and the bike pulls over towards you, you're too far outboard. And when people do that on the other side, they have all the way to the motorcycle, all the way to the gear, and now they're throwing whatever weight they have, whether it's 150 pounds because uh, it's a lightweight you know, rider or whether it's 300 pounds by the time it's a big guy with all his gear on getting on. And that's, that, that's the part that can sometimes overwhelm them. Thanks, Sam. So another manual turn is, again, trying to 
come back to this whole use your weight, use your leverage as opposed to muscle on the bike. If the bike is tipped over and you want to get it pointed the other direction, the easiest way to pivot is from the handlebar itself. So if we want to turn the bike to the left and the bike's laying over on its side to the left, turn the handlebars to the right. So they're turned away from the fall direction. You can pick up the left side of the handlebar and you kind of do a squat. So you get down on top of the handlebar and lock your arms out so you're not using your arm muscles to actually move the bike and use your legs or you can use your body weight. And as you lift up and back with your legs, your body weight will pivot the bike. And because the front of the bike's lighter, it'll just pivot right around on a trail. And we've actually laid bikes over deliberately and then used the handlebar pull just to get them pivoted around and pointed the direction we needed to go. And the front wheel sort of acts as a dolly while you're doing it. Yeah, it kind of pivots around center. Usually it'll pivot somewhere around where the foot pegs are and the back end will kind of drag around with it. But it's a great method, so good that we've actually done it deliberately to bikes that were upright. We needed to get them go the other direction. We had no berm to work with or we didn't have space. We'll actually lay them down on their side, right or left, and then we'll pivot them around doing the handlebar pull. And there's all the other precautions to, to take in mind here when you're doing this sort of thing, right? You, I mean, you're talking about bikes with crash bar protection on them and you're watching where you're laying them down, et cetera. Well, realize the less protection you have, the more damage you can cause. So if we're doing this with our Harley, uh, it's probably going to have a different result than if we're doing it with our old GS. Okay, so that's power turns, manual turns, and now we're going to talk about assisted turns. What is an assisted turn? Is that when you have your buddy with you? Exactly. It uh, means I got a friend to work with or I have something uh, like a winch. So I have some sort of buddy, improvised buddy. So there's a couple different ways. And I really, when I thought about this topic, I thought about a very specific situation I found myself in a couple of times. And this is where we're going down a, a, a wonderful road and the road kind of gets a little more overgrown and then the road is sort of used to be a road and then all of a sudden I find myself on a trail and then I realize I've gotten too deep, I'm in the wrong place and I've got to get going back the other direction. By the time I get to this situation, I'm on a narrow one-person track and there's usually a big hill on one side and a big hill going the other direction on the other side. So one's going up and one's going down and I have no way to get this bike pointed the way I, I just came up. And because of this, I, I can't walk it down. I can't back it down. I've got to get it pointed the other direction. And so that's kind of the situation we're looking at here. We taught and still teach at times uh, a leverage system. We, we call it a Z-drag. It's, it was taken from uh, mountain climbers and from kayakers, but it's a, it's a two-to-one pulley system. Or, and what we'll do is hook up the pulleys and the ropes so that we get a two-to-one ratio. And we'll take and pull the wheel up the hill and point it up the hill and then we can lower it down the opposite side so we're pointing the direction we came from and this works out really well if you have a, a pal because you can use the motorcycle or, or wrestle the bike up the hill uh, motor it some if you can but that other person can hold the rope and they get a two to one leverage to help with the assist to get it turned around pointed the other direction now, we'll post a diagram of the Z-Drag system, but um, it's quite interesting, quite simple, really. You're not, you're not talking about big components that you can use carabiners for it and, and just carry it in your bag. And it's really nice because it is just some pulleys, some carabiners, some rope, and flat strap. And we carry flat strap anyway so we can help pull bikes around. We carry rope so we can hoist food up in trees from bears. So really, you're just talking about throwing a couple of carabiners in and a couple of pulleys extra. Other than that, the rest of it should be something you probably have on hand anyways. 
Now, if you're really serious about motorcycle recovery, you may have a winch, but I think there's very few people out there running around with a winch. But if you do, how do you use that? Well, I'll tell you, you're absolutely correct. There's very few people. I, I still carry a, a Warren XT17. And so it's a, a 1,700 pound winch that only weighs eight and a half pounds. And I keep that on the bikes. And partly because as a trainer, we need to be able to self-recover all the bikes. And as a guide for Tour USA, you know, when we take people up into the mountains and we do the, the backcountry discovery route tours and training, we we try to avoid using support vehicles. We want to be self-recovering as a vehicle. And you put a, a large bike over a cliff and no matter how much manpower you have, you're not pulling a 900-pound bike or 600-pound bike back up the cliff. So the, manu- the electric winch is a really nice tool. It's also really nice if you ride solo anywhere because now you have all of this pulling power you know, by yourself with you. It's stuck in mud or, or tip it over. But the winch itself, you can hook up and it, it free hangs on any side of the bike. And so you can run it up to an anchor point and it's powered by the, the bike itself. And you can just winch the front of the bike up the hill like we would with the Z-Drag. A whole lot easier pushing a button. And then you could just lower it down to the other direction. But it's a great tool to have and, and learn how to use. And Warren's got a bunch of stuff out there. And I've even done a couple of YouTubes on the Z-Drag. So there's lots of information out there that, that your listeners can find on the, on the Internet. What a great resource nowadays. And a toe strap pivot. Uh, so I mentioned carrying the flat straps with us. I always carry a longer toe strap. So if we get a bike in, uh, in trouble and we have to tow it off the mountain or, or to a place for repairs, we can pull out a long one of these flat straps. And I also carry the tie-down straps, a little figure-eight straps where they're sewn in the middle and they have two loops on them. I carry them not only for tying them down, but also they work wonderful as handles because you can slip these through a part of the frame or on the handlebars or on the forks and you slip them through and you have a, a great handle that you can you can pull and leverage on. And so you can run these straps through and use something very similar to the Z-Drag where the person can stand uphill from the bike, turn the bike pointed uphill. And again, we're talking narrow trail, hill to the right going up, hill to the left going down. So there's not a lot of room to work with, but you can turn the handlebars uphill powered as far up the hill as you can. And you're not going to end up climbing the hill. And if you do, that's to your advantage anyways. You just don't want the back of the end falling down the other direction because now you have to get back up onto the trail. But once it's up there, you can put these pull straps or the uh, the tie-down straps through his handles, and then they can use their body weight because they're downhill anyways. So as they're pulling across the hill, they're using their body weight to pull it up and across. And then once it's pointed downhill, they can actually get to the high side and lower it back down to a flat trail. So you're using it as a handle and an extension. Yep. And the two of them is you have a short strap. So that could be a a handle close to the bike where you have good control. But having the toe strap allows you to get out more distance. So you may be able to get to a different position where you can get um, in a safe position and still have leverage and still be um, good to assist. Or if you have multiple buddies, you can have one that's behind the other. So it's almost like when you do a tug of war. One's close to the bike on one strap and one's farther out from the bike on the other longer strap. So for exercises, for practicing this sort of thing, getting the feel for it, what would you suggest? Um, You know, the trail turns, the ones I would focus on is, you know, we've gone through power turns and manual turns and assisted turns. We've got like nine different things we've already covered on this on this episode. So hopefully they can listen back to it and pick out the ones that work for them. But I would work on the slide turns because that's very practical and something you can use on a regular basis. Um, the trail turns that that using the power to get it up onto a uh, a hill, and you don't need a big 
you know, or a narrow road, you just need a little bit of a of a, an embankment or a hill, and just park your bike parallel to it. Turn the handlebars to go up the hill. Run the bike up the hill until it's 90 degrees to the the road you were on. Turn the handlebars the opposite direction where you were going and lower it back down to the road until you're parallel. And then do it again. Go the other direction. And just continue practicing that so it's very comfortable. Do it while you're on the bike. Do it while you're off the bike. Again, if it's a controlled environment, worst case you're going to do is go up a little too high and the bike will tip over. But luckily, we've got protection. We've picked an area that's soft, so we're not going to damage things. But it's an extremely useful and and not only just a useful tool and technique, but something you can replicate in many, many different situations. For the slide turn, the pivot turn, and standing pivot, would it be good to pick a spot like a flat open area with, with lots of loose gravel? Is that the ideal sort of learning situation? I would actually start with a grass field if you have the option mm. because it's it's just dirt. So if you tip the bike over and at some point, that's probably going to be part of the learning process. Less often if you're with a trainer or, or a professional because you're, you're receiving those, those techniques and coaching very immediately and we know what's going on. Uh, you can certainly expect to put your bike on the ground more often if you're trying to self-teach. Well, Brett, you have given us a lot to think about today and a lot to go out there and practice, which is a great excuse to get out there and ride your bike. Any excuse we can find to ride, I'm in. Thanks, Brett. It was a pleasure being with you, and I, my mind is just streaming with all kinds of things we can share with people in the future, so I'm hoping to come back on the show. However, uh, it's going to be a little bit because I'm, I'm actually in the process of putting my trip together for uh, riding through the, the length of Africa this winter, so it, it may be a little while before I come back on the show. Well, we'll have to find out how your trip goes then, and uh, otherwise, until next time. Excellent. Thanks for having me on the show, and enjoy your day. I've been speaking with Brett Tax, who is the head trainer for Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. You can find out more about them and the courses they offer that Brett offers at PSSOR.com. Coming up in just a minute, our final segment is with Sam Manicom talking about what he's doing right now in the United States. Stay with us. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is also supported by Hermes Triumph. Hermes Triumph has been around since 1963. 1963, that that makes them one of the oldest Triumph dealers in the United States. It's a mom and pop shop, basically. It's, It's family owned and operated. They've got adventure specialists there that have been there for generations. And together, they tell me they've got over 5 million miles of riding experience between them. They've got a a full service department and an online store that's extremely successful. They ship parts all around the world. They offer a $500 credit for motorcycle shipment. So it's something you want to check out if you're outside of their area. To find out more about Hermes Motorcycles and Parts, check them out at www.hermes.com. And you can visit their online store. It's www.triumphestore.com. And both those links will be in our show notes. But if you're going to them, you want to buy something, use the ARR code, the special code. You put it in when you go to purchase, and it's going to get you 10% off your order plus free shipping in any of the 48 states. So make sure you let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio and don't forget to use that ARR code, 10% off, hermes.com. Tour USA Motorcycle Rentals and Tours is also a supporter of Adventure Rider Radio. Tour USA is a motorcycle rental company based near Seattle, Washington in the United States. 
And it's the perfect launching point for any trip along the West Coast of the United States and Canada, boasting top destinations for adventure riders from around the world. Tour USA bikes are all equipped with protection for adventure travel, including Pelican panniers, to ensure that if you drop it over, there's less potential for damage. Whether you're planning on renting a bike for your own solo adventure, or whether you want to participate in a fully supported event with trainers, guides, and support vehicles, Tour USA is there to help your dream ride come true. Let Tour USA help you dream, plan, ride. www.tourusa.us. That's www.tourusa.us. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, if you're a Facebook follower nowadays, and I mean, really, who isn't, and you follow Sam Manicom, the author and adventure writer, who's very well known in our community, then you probably know he's been spending some time in the United States, posting all kinds of photos of this gorgeous area that he's riding in. And you got to wonder, you know, what's going on with it? Well, I decided to pick up the phone and connect with him and see just exactly what he's doing while he's touring around the U.S. Welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be back with you guys. Well, it's great to get you while you're on the road. I think this is really kind of neat. Uh, I know you're in the United States right now. Probably a lot of people who follow you on Facebook know you're there, but um, maybe some people don't have a clue what you're doing. You're just off on another motorcycle adventure. What are you doing? Well, um, I'm now four and a bit weeks into a six-week ride around the USA. That so far has been absolutely brilliant fun. Uh, the plan is um, travel presentations and book signings in Arizona and California with lots of great riding routes in between. The first section of the trip was a scurry across the Palm Springs, and I rode the I-10 in really nice, toasty temperatures. And the sections of, of the desert environment I really like, lots of blue sky and tan-coloured ground. But I usually like to take the back roads, so I seldom ride freeways. And in a way, this was a good experience because, well, there was hardly any traffic, so I was able to enjoy the views. And I was aiming for um, Palm Springs, and the last time I was there, it was 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. Mm. Um, so I didn't spend an awful lot of time exploring it. You came over as sort of a speaking tour, right? That's what you'd planned to do to begin with. Yeah, very much so. So when you're planning this, do you sort of set it up and figure out what sort of adventures can I get into while I'm traveling from place to place? Oh, definitely. And for me, that's part of the, the joy of doing something like this. The presentations and the book signings, they're really important, and that's the key for me to be here. But it's, um, to a major extent, the riding that I can fit in between. So I spend um, quite a lot of time working out the different routes and so on. I mean, there are some sections of this tour where there hasn't been any time to do something other than get from A to B. Um, but that's normally fine because, hey, I'm traveling in a part of the world that I'm only just beginning to learn and understand. So it's pretty much all new for me. And from Palm Springs, I rode down to uh, Siva BMW in Orange County, California. And I tell you what, these guys have just got the most amazing hospitality and the organization from the team. And I'm going to name drop a little bit here because these guys were phenomenal. Um, Jim Foreman, David Diaz, Brian Bell, Edwina, who saved my bacon, but that's another story, and Evan Bell and his wife Lois. You know, these guys worked really hard to, convent, uh, to convert a, an empty showroom over the road into a huge and really well-blacked-out presentation room. What do you do for your presentation? Well, my presentations are um, a mix of um, slides, which I tell tales of the road over, 
And in with each of those tales is a real taste of the sort of thing that can happen on an overland journey. So you get these awesome moments where you're just blown away by the scenery and you're sitting there surrounded by the best that nature can give you. And you're on your own and you're just soaking this all up. But of course you get the disasters. But I try to weave in, um, you know, suggestions about kit and you know, all those sorts of things, border crossings. But my presentations also have sections where, you know, maybe 50 shots will ro- roll through with captions and music background. So um, people can just sit back and relax and let the pictures tell the story. Um, because there's never enough time, even in my presentations, which are usually two hours long, there's never enough time to um, to give a, a real, real taste of um, wherever you're talking about. So, you know, you're really cherry picking and the pictures help. So you drop in, you do your presentation and then you're back on the bike going again. Yeah, pretty much. Although there's also um, a bit of socializing that goes on with that. <laughs> so, so where do you go from there? From there, um, I headed up towards um, Santa Clarita to link up with a friend there, Owen Balduff. Um, he was my host on the last tour that I did over here. And, you know, that, this is actually part of the fun of the tour, is meeting people um, that I've, you know, made friends with over the years. Uh, I live in the UK, of course, and so, you know, a trip like this gives me a chance to catch up, which, you know, often doesn't happen. I had the chance to ride with a guy called um, Sharif Masood, and um, he was um, showing me around some of the back roads between Santa Clarita and Ojai, which is a very small, picturesque town. And on the way, he showed me one of the delights that nature throws up at us from time to time, a road that looks as if it was going down, um, downhill, but it has you rolling in the wrong direction. As in, you park on this, you think your bike is, is nosing downhill, but when you take your feet off the ground you roll backwards uphill. Obviously, it's an optical illusion, but I'd never seen anything like this. It was very, very weird. But, uh, you know, I do stretch myself on on these trips with the commitments, the presentations and the publicity work and the time riding and exploring. And in between hand, it's keeping up with correspondence and running my business, Um, you know, the business side of my books and so on and future presentations and arrangements for the next shows. It's a real juggle at times, um, but it kind of works. And, you know, when I go for three or four days without Wi-Fi, um, because I'm wild camping when I'm not staying with people, it's actually a kind of a pleasure just not to have to do this stuff. So, hey, another silver lining. But, you know, the only thing that makes this work for me is that I've got Birgit who's at home. And she really encourages me to hit the road for these tours. Um, but then she's at home and she's dealing with posting out book orders, working with the distributor and this time also um, the print of the new edition of Under Asian Skies. So um, that's been an adventure in itself. Actually, it's been um, a little bit like riding a long dirt road and falling off a lot with the occasional wild animal buzzing in from the side of the trail. You know, life just doesn't run smoothly sometimes, does it? On your tour that you've been doing now, what are some places that you've discovered? So sort of give us some... Um maybe some uh, little insights to some secret places or some places that you've discovered that you didn't know existed before. I didn't know that San Jose BMW existed before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully a lot of other people did. (laughs) Yeah, no, that was my next presentation. And I, you know, I've got to mention these guys because every um, dealership that invites me to come and do a presentation, they're really special because, you know, I'm getting known in the States now and my books are getting known about, but you know, for, um, these first two tours that I've done, it's a bit of a gamble for the dealerships to stick their necks out. 
but they seem to be happy with what I'm doing. And actually, this also gives me an, an opportunity to mention something else that I wanted to. A lot of the people that are coming to the presentations, especially this last couple that I've done, have been there because of Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, very nice. Um, they listen to the shows and they hear us chatting at the end about my events and things like that, and they come along. And I tell you what, everybody has such good things. So you can have um, a little tingle over what's being said about you behind your back. <laughs> but one of the things that I wanted to do on this trip was to um, link up with um, Sean and Lance Thomas and their family. They live in an area called Prunedale, which is in California. And it was Sean's, birth Sean's son's birthday, so it's a really fun time to be there. Lance, by the way, gave me my first ever off-road training. And I tell you what, I wished I'd had this training before I headed off and, uh, and traveling. Some of the things that I've been doing instinctively, you know, instinct, you can take that one step for, further because you suddenly know and the instinct and the knowledge work together to make a significant difference to what you're doing. But uh, no, that was really nice. But a key for me um, with this trip was not a place that I'd not been to before, but a place that um, Birgit and I visited when we were on the big trip. And that was uh, the Chenard Winery and, um, and Vineyard in the Castro Valley, which is just inland from San, San Francisco. Uh, these people, they're just such a super family. It's a, it's a family business and they have award-winning wines. And, well, our, our week's intention of staying there ended up being six weeks. And, uh, yeah, well, we kept on watching the clock towards the end. I think, drink, drink more amazing wine or head for Alaska. But... Um, now, it was really, really nice to see these people. Again, because, you know, distance, you make good friends and you don't necessarily have a chance to stay in touch. And there's nothing better than sitting around for a good old gossip, is there? They were a good kicking off point for me for somewhere new that I did want to go to. And that was Mount um, Tamil Pei, which is just north of San Francisco. And Al had recommended that to me. And I really wanted to see this. The mountains are apparently beautiful and um, lots of really interesting roads to ride around it and pay camping sites, but also wild camping opportunities. But, um, well, it wasn't to be. It was that blooming sea fog again and it just rolled in and everything covered. But that allowed me a bonus. And that was it gave me the chance to link up with Sandy, Terry and Jack Borden. And um, I haven't seen the Adventure Trio since just before they headed off on um, their big trip down through Central and South America. So you can imagine that uh, we had lots to talk about. But, um, do you know, I'd suddenly got at this stage where I needed to have some time on my own. Um, I'd been around people pretty much nonstop ever since I'd arrived in Arizona. And all of a sudden I had this yearning just to be me sitting lonely in a camping site with a beautiful view. And um, I found the absolutely perfect place on recommendation from Sandy and Terry. And, yeah, just, just sitting in the warmth with the breeze, gorgeous lake in front of me, and nobody else around was, was lovely. You know, it's a bit like a charge of the mental batteries. Um, my next stop was South Lake Tahoe, and that was something that I hadn't planned to do. That wasn't in the original trip, but I was still getting problems with the side stand, the world that Howard had so amazingly done for me. Yeah, there was something wrong in there still. So I decided to go to Sierra BMW in Reno for that, which was great. And they took care of me. You know, they slotted me in straight away and, and got things sorted out for me. Then came um, the, the joy section of the trip, the joy riding side. I'd made the decision that I wanted to zigzag over as many passes as I could through the Sierra Nevada. Burgess and I had ridden through Yosemite on the big trip, but um, I, I, we hadn't done, ridden any of the other passes 
and I had no idea how fascinating they were going to be. You know, but not only the roads and the scenery, but the history of each. Each one has got a series of quite fantastic stories to tell. And it is really a, such a joy um, to do this. And I hope that I've managed to collect enough information to write some articles. So, you know, so I can share the fun and the histories of these roads. But I found myself constantly in awe of the original settlers. And in fact, those who'd, you know, trailblazed the ways through these passes, the stories are um, just of extreme hardship. And yeah, those who died in the effort, as well as those who made it through, I think deserve full respect. And as for those that didn't, I guess most people will have heard of the ill-fated Donner Party, who um, actually had that particular pass named after them. I didn't manage to ride that this time, but um, I hope to. You, you just pick up stories about people who battled and they're lowering and raising their livestock and wagons up and down steep cliffs and they're, they're getting lost all of the time and the weather changes and the snows come in early and they have to eat their animals to survive and then they're living on um, roasted acorns. And But the other thing that amazed me about these passes is how different each of them are to each other, both scenery and road types. I mean, Ebbets Pass, for example, has a wonderful, long, twisty, narrow section through the mountains that means that you really can't combine riding and enjoying the views. You just have to stop. I mean, that's no hardship because I do that a lot anyway. But, um, um, I mean, Kit Carson Pass, I, I rode when I was in the States in May and June last year. But um, at that time, all of the other passes were snowed in except for the Kit Carson Pass. And I rode it again because um, I was on the way to do a presentation, so I didn't stop as much as I wanted to, but this time I could. Um, the Sonora Pass was my favourite to ride. Do you know, you, you go certain places sometimes and it, they just strike a chord with you. And for me, the Sonora Pass was the mix of the dramatic scenery, the bends and the sections where they um, it opens out and the wide vistas. Um, but um, top tip, one of the things that I fast realised is that it's really important to plan the rides over the passes because you run them east to west or west to east by what the sun's doing. If you get the sun behind you, you have all of the fantastic colours in front of you. Wrong, and you're riding into the glare. Mm. Um, if you're a fairly quick rider, you know, you can be over some of these passes in four hours. So you could actually do two passes in one day. But, you know, you're not going to get um, the time to, you know, to really stop and, and just smell the roses. Um, so where do you head to next? Okay, um, my next target was Yosemite. Um the last time I was there, it was in a September again, but I was traveling with Ian Harper from Overland Junction. And it was bitterly cold and it snowed the night we arrived. It was a real Murphy's Law situation. We were allowed to camp that night, but we had to leave in the morning in a hurry um, as the 120 was the only pass that was left open out of um, Yosemite. And I later heard of one chap who hadn't got up early enough in the morning and ended up being stranded for days. But this time, it was absolutely no drama at all. I had four days of brilliant sunshine and wonderful temperatures. And it was great to get out of the foothills because um, the temperatures there were about 95 degrees um, Fahrenheit. So manageable, but still on the toasty side um, for mooching around in, in bike gear. But, I mean, have you been to Yosemite? I have not. It's a place I want to go. It's, it's always been on my list. If you get a chance to, um, it is awesome in so many ways. Well, the, the scenery is, is quite stunning. But the thing that got me was how amazingly varied the, the scenery is. And I got a real buzz out of how many different nationalities there were 
um, walking around and driving around, learning and being awed. Um, on one day, I, ca- I counted 14 different languages being spoken. Um, and that just made me sit and admire the foresight of um, Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir. Because in 1903, that was when they first started the plans to set Yosemite as- um, aside for future generations. And, you know, 1903, people just weren't thinking about yeah. that sort of thing in those days, were they? And no. aren't we lucky that they did? Yeah, very um, much so. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, of course, the infrastructure is there now. So you've got um, uh, the asphalt roads and the parking bays and uh, camping areas and so on. But they've been very neatly done so they don't interfere with the views at all. And, yeah, very, very special. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed being there. But, you know, I was camping down in the foothills in part because I'd camped um, a couple of nights up in the mountains and um, – it had got really cold, and I guess my three-year-old sleeping bag wasn't quite up to it anymore. So um, camping down in sort of 95 degrees daytime temperature was absolutely fine. Now, one of the camping sites just um, a couple of days before Horizons Unlimited California, which is where I was aiming for um, ultimately, I was camping near a little town called Moccasin. And that drew my attention on the map. I thought, I've got to go and see a town called Moccasin. But on the camping site, I linked up with a couple from Oregon. Um, and Rachel and Patrick had ridden down for their first ever Horizons California event, and they were planning to spend the next couple of days riding and hiking up in Yosemite. Instant friends, you know, like-minded souls, but I did feel sorry for them because um, the days they went up into Yosemite, the weather changed, and um, they got down to 23 degrees up there. Mm. So um, Fahrenheit, too. I don't know what that is in Celsius, but um, it's cold. Yeah, it was enough for me to know <laughs> it was blooming chilly. <laughs> so you were there for the hub meet? I was, um, and it, it, it was a high spot for me on the journey. I think that Facebook travel events such as Horizons Unlimited and Overland Expo are just such amazing places to link up with like-minded people. And one of the joys for me of Facebook is that the people then you meet at these events, then you subsequently stay, can stay friends with and people that you've met online on Facebook you've suddenly got the chance to meet them and spend time and have a beer with them or a coffee or just sit around chatting. And um, I, I really love the buzz that happens with that. I really wish that I could make, um, you know, make it to more events um, like this. But, you know, talking of people that me- you make friends with, um, this time, the night before Horizons, I'd um, arranged to link up with Alain, who's originally from French Canada. And um, he has some awesomely inspiring stories to tell of his travels um, through Aboriginal Australia. And he was presenting for the first time at Horizons, so he was really nervous. But, um, yeah, super story to tell. And also Anya, who hails originally from Germany. And she has a quite incredible life story to tell. But I love the buzz that surrounds her when she talks about motorcycling and her plans to ride through Central and South America. And, you know, we camped um, down a dirt track on a spot alongside of a river with the Milky Way and shooting stars above us. And it sounds horribly romantic, but that's what it was like. And it was just the three of us sitting there under this awesome sky, talking tales and, yeah, lovely. Um, but that was the night before Horizons. Um, and uh, Horizons is um, in California is held in the, the small town of Mariposa, so it's still in the foothills of Yosemite. And funnily enough, I'd been there in June doing a presentation at the BMW 49ers rally, and so I'd got the lay of the land. And in a way, it was a little bit arrived, like arriving back in a second home. Um, but Horizons um, had a wonderfully happy, very friendly atmosphere. 
And to my mind, there's no better place to learn about overlanding and the angles and the possibilities and so on, because you know, presentations, all sorts of topics, topics are being covered, kits, bikes, routes, dealing with filmmaking, social media on the road, hunting out sponsorship for those who really want the responsibility and off training, road training, and of course, the travel presentations. Um, to my surprise, I ended up doing three presentations, which was um, interesting um, in uh, a weekend. But um, yeah, was that planned about, or um, that, that travel sort of, addiction? Was that planned or did that something that just came? Um, I'd lined up to do two, um, but then they had somebody who didn't make it because you know a lot of the people that are going to these events they're on the road, and um, something gets in the way, you know, a breakdown or whatever else it might be. Sure. So um, they inevitably end up with the odd slot or two. Um, and uh, Flip and Nicole slotted me in for a third one um, and bless them I think it was not only because they had a gap but because they realised that I'd still got quite a lot of copies of Into Africa yet you know I'll, I carry more copies of that book because it's the first book in the series and it's the bestseller um, uh, but I still had a fair few left and um, I think they wanted me to have a little bit more of a chance to sell them and bless them <laughs> thanks for their help I sold the last copy on the last day very nice but, um, <laughs> Yeah. No, it was very cool because that meant, you know, I could ride on from there without the baggage of boxes of books on the back of the bike, which is manageable. But um, riding dirt roads and twisties isn't quite as much fun when you've got a big lump of boxes on the back of the book as well as the um, the pop-up publicity banners. Well, I, I think the neat thing about that is that you're delivering books that have been taken on an adventure themselves on a motorcycle. That, that should be added value right there. Proper travel books. Yeah. I mean, they've been out and they've been on an adventure. They've been carried in the back of a motorcycle. I don't know. To me, that that's better than a signature. Yeah, I kind of like it. And, you know, they do get a little bit of scuffing on the covers from the vibration, especially when I've ridden off-road. But one of the things that's really nice in um, the USA is that everybody that I point that out to say, well, that doesn't matter. It's a travel book. It's mm -hmm. that's absolutely fine. No worries. Yeah. And, you know, no demanding a discount or anything else like that. And I, I just think that's awesome of, of them. The real spirit because, of course, it's the money that I'm making from selling the books that um, is putting gas in the tank and paying for camping sites. Um, my next um, journey took me from Horizons up, back up through Yosemite. And this time I managed to ride the full um, Tioga Pass, which um, on my previous four days, I'd, I'd only ventured about halfway down it just to see what it was like. And um, to my surprise, I managed to link up with um, three people who had been at Horizons, and uh, we managed to ride together for um, the first time. So that was a bonus. And we dropped down to Mono Lake, which I haven't been to for 18 years. Um, it's a beautiful place, although, of course, there's the, the very sad story about how um, the Tufa Towers have appeared with the water draw off for cities in California. But it's still drop-dead gorgeous. And then... Um, I rode towards Death Valley and um, aiming to, to visit Hoover Dam and perhaps even Las Vegas. But um, yeah, camping um, in national forest parks and Bureau of Land Management spots and small town camping sites, I made it to Death Valley. And it's just as special as I remember from my first visit 18 years ago. I was lucky with the heat too. You know, it's the hottest place on earth, but the temperature gods were kind to me. Um, it was forecasted to have temperatures around 85, 90 degrees, which would have been fine. But um, yeah, um, it was just a little bit lower than that. And um, that made it perfect. And the scenery is just starkly beautiful. And in a way, it actually reminded me of Namibia, um, even sand dunes there. 
you know, everything's um, crisp, clean colours and sharp edged and um, with the heat and so on. It, it is really beautiful. Um, but I tell you what, I jinked myself the next day. I was packing away my rain gear after a night's camping and looking at it and thinking, hmm, carried this all this time and haven't worn it yet. Yeah, what happened that day? <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach me. But um, uh, Saturday, I did my last BMW presentation, and that was at GoAZ BMW here in Phoenix. And um, good fun people. Um, but, you know, sadly, um, getting there and back will probably be the last time I ride Al Jesse's wonderful F800 GS. It has been brilliant fun to ride. Um, can I just do a little thank you? Um, I'd like to thank all of the people that came along to the presentations to date. I'm blown away with how far some people travel to get to them and how welcoming people have been made. I really hope that um, they enjoyed the fun and the dramas of the road in my presentation. Um, but as for what's next, well, um, sadly, I don't have time to ride over to Asheville in North Carolina. I've got a six-week budget, so I'm flying over to Overland Expo East, which is being held in their new venue on the Biltmore Estate near Asheville in Carolina. And that's on between the 7th and 9th of October. Um, it's, North Carolina is just beautiful. There's so much to see on the doorstep. Um, and this event is great fun. At this time, I've got um, three presentations to do again, but they're spread out over the whole event. And they're smaller. They're not two-hour presentations. They're um, 45, 50-minute presentations. So I'm pre presenting. The title of one of them is Writing a Travel Book, um, A Worthwhile Ambition. So um, I can have lots of fun with that. And the next presentation is um, traveling in the, ma the majesty that is Norway. And Norway has a reputation for being a horribly expensive place to travel. Um, so my presentations on ba based on you know, how you can see all of the stunning landscapes, but without um, burning your budget. And the third presentation is on traveling um, in Vietnam, which is just a country of full-on surprise. And then I'm back to Phoenix, and um, we're recording Adventure Rider Radio Raw. And then the next day, I'm flying back to England. Um, this this trip is just brilliant fun. Um, the people, the landscapes, the joy of being on the open road, and all of the surprises. But I have to say, I do miss riding a journey like this with Berger, and I'm really looking forward to being back with her again. It's interesting to talk to you and hear what you do for, for your tour because it's so full on. I, mean, I sort of get that from watching what you're doing on Facebook and seeing your posts. I mean, you have all kinds of gorgeous pictures of these places you've been to, but um, it, that's a really full on tour you're doing. I mean, you're sort of going, going, going all the time. Like you're saying, you you don't even have time now to ride across to, to Overland Expo. You're going to have to fly over. So I, I'm, I'm wondering, do you miss those times when you were just riding on your bike, just you and your bike? Oh, absolutely. Without doubt. It's, this is a completely different kettle of fish to a, a proper overlanding trip. Um, each of course have got their advantages. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons it took eight and a bit years to go around the world was because I kept getting lost and that didn't matter. But I kept finding great places. And, and you know, you're on a beach in Thailand and, you know, people have paid thousands of dollars to get there for a two week holiday. And three weeks later, you're still sitting on it, enjoying the, the turquoise sea and the white sand and the palm trees and thinking, Shall I stay another few days or shall I get on a move? No, I stay for another couple of days. It's nice here. Um, so you do kind of miss that side of things. But, you know, like I say, it's, it's two different um, kettles of fish. Um, 
So I really enjoy what I'm doing. Although um, you'll laugh at this. I had an email from my mother yesterday. Um, we've been seeing the photos on Facebook. You look as if you've lost weight. Are you all right? <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, you're kind of burning, so um, you're getting on with it. <laughs> well, Sam, great to talk to you. Have fun at Overland Expo. And, of course, I'll talk to you not far down the road when we're doing RAW. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. I'm looking forward to getting with, uh, getting together with you and um, all of the guys again. It's um, so much fun doing RAW. It's a lot of laughs. And, do you know, every time we do it, I learn stuff from everybody else, and that makes it absolutely fantastic to do. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Jim. And that was Sam Manicom. You can find out more about Sam by visiting his website, sam-manicom.com. And, of course, you can always find him on Facebook. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They have 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure hope you enjoyed this one as much as we did putting it together. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. Keeps things going in the background. And to you, the listener, for dropping by. And I encourage you to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. We've got all kinds of episodes you can download all for free. And if you're into it, while you're there, you can click on the donate button and uh, add something to help fill the gaps here at Adventure Rider Radio. We are certainly built on a model of advertising and donations to make the whole thing work. Well, no excuses now. It's time to get out there and ride your bike. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. My name's Lyndon Poskett, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.